Uh, but back to Judges, uh, the very last verse of this book says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the story of this whole strange, odd book that we find ourselves in. The people of God have been uh, released from slavery from Egypt where they were. They wandered the desert for 40 years. They're, they're about to go into um, a, an established kingdom of you know, the kings of Solomon and David, kind of the promised land. But they're in this in-between time where they have no king whatsoever. And everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. That's why we've called this thing in their own eyes. Because as we find in this book, we find also in our world around us that many people just look to themselves or what feels good or makes them happy to say what is right. This morning, we're going to focus in on one man named Jephthah. He is called out as a leader to... Um, Go forth and lead these people. And so thinking about leadership and even this last week as, as our president made his big speech, I thought I would look to some presidential leadership quotes. Because as we're going to find, Jephthah likes to talk. Here's one we know very well, right, from Abraham Lincoln. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Or Dwight D. Eisenhower, what counts is not necessarily the size, the dog, and the fight. It's the size, the fight, in the dog. Or Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Or I love this from JFK about going to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There are great inspirational leadership presidential quotes, but there are also probably just as many not-so-good quotes. Uh, you may remember from Clinton, his famous, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Uh, Ronald Reagan said, I learned a lot. I went down to Latin America to learn their views, and you'd be surprised, they're all individual countries. Um, also, Ronald Reagan, facts are stupid things. Yep. Uh, uh, Nixon uh, said, when the president does it, uh, that means it's not illegal. That's good. That's good to know. Um, I, I also, when I was thinking of kind of leadership, kind of speaking in quotes, what they said, I thought about this this day, right? Today is the Super Bowl. Um, we were, were kind of taking bets earlier on how many Chiefs, how much Chiefs gear there would be here today. I see, I see a lot out there. Are there any Eagles fans here today? None. Maybe one or two. Okay. But Dan, you're a Bears fan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
yes, we have the big Super Bowl today. I, I don't know if you're going to be watching it, who you'll be cheering for, commercials, Chiefs, halftime show, I don't know. But we also have very strange quotes, uh, people saying things in the public, head coaches, right? Uh, I'm also a Bears fan like Dan. We had a terrible coach named John Fox, and he said one time, we need to generate more than zero points to win games. There's no doubt. <laughs> yes. Uh, Bill Peterson, the Oilers head coach, said, uh, you guys line up alphabetically by height. <laughs> or Bill Cower once said, you're not attempting to circumcise the rules. It's not the right word. Throughout the Bible, we, we get this caution about our own words. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. Matthew 12.36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Or Proverbs has lots of, lots of little verses and things about our own words and the tongue. And Proverbs 21, 23, whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Or James 1.26, if anyone thinks that they're religious and does not bridle their tongue, uh, they, they deceive their heart. That person's religion or faith is worthless. As we've walked through these, these judges, these, these leaders of God's people, this is the, the one, this guy Jephthah, who talks the most. He's, he's sought out to be a, a leader, to lead the people, to help them out, even though, as we're going to see, he's, he's an outcast. And while he fights and defends and, and does these things, uh, it's his words, tragically, as we'll see, that are most remembered. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is uh, a leader's words. And before you kind of even check out and say, well, well, pastor, I'm not, I'm not a leader myself. I, I don't have any kind of position in the church or my job or neighborhood or whatever. I, I'm a firm believer that all Christians are, are leaders. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples. We're, we're called to go ask people to follow after us, to have an influence on the people with our, our words, our actions. And so in some sense, we are all leaders, and we need to be careful with our words in public or, or in private. So as we go through this story of this man, Jephthah, we're going to look at this idea of leadership and words and how we are to use them and be careful with them. But number one, as we're going to look at today, leaders... Use their words to repent. Leaders use their words to repent, to, to, to apologize, to know when they are supposed to say sorry. Uh, over the years, we, we've seen plenty of public figures, politicians, uh, apologizing for things. And it becomes hard sometimes when we see 
many leaders doing this to trust them sometimes that is, is their repentance, uh, is it deep down, is it to the heart, is it, is it just words, or do they mean what they say? Are they just trying to kind of do the minimal, maybe to keep up their reputation? Uh, one of the shows that uh, it's been, been done for a while but is still watched, right, is The Office. And there's a, an episode where Dwight, um, he is asked to apologize up front. And he gets up and he has a letter that he's written out and he stands in front of the entire office and he, he reads this letter which says, I state my regret. And he folds it up and that's, it's over. And they're kind of like, what? What? why didn't you write more? And he says, well, I didn't, I didn't really mean it. <laughs> he was asked to do it, so he did it. He wrote, I state my regret. Unfortunately, there's even been this um, trend or this thing we've seen in the last 20 or so years of Christian leaders, pastors, who were caught doing things, inappropriate things, and had to state their regret, had to apologize, had to repent in public. And we've, as a church, we have not been exempt from some of these things in our 23-year history of leadership needing to apologize. We, we are called to be a people, we're called to be as Christians, uh, a people who repent. When we come to Christ, it's not just put your faith, but it's repent and put faith in Christ. And then as we continually learn about how sinful we are and hypocritical, to continue to repent and turn to God. And well, what about a a, a nation or a people or a church, what, what if a, a group finds themselves needing to repent? That's what we're going to see as the background for the upbringing of this leader, Jephthah. A whole nation that is fallen away from God and repents, as, as we'll see. Do they really mean it or do they not? So turn with me to Judges chapter 10 and we'll start at verse 6 and see where does our story start for Jephthah. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Sometimes the word again in the Bible can mean great things, right? Again, God saved them. Again, God showed up. But in the book of Judges, it usually means terrible, awful things. We find this often in almost every chapter Again, the people of Israel did what was evil. But now we have this long list of all of the gods that they went and worshipped. In verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel. 
who are beyond the Jordan, the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. This is the cycle that we've talked about in Judges that happens over and over and over again. And we've said this happens in our own life too sometimes, right? God's people go to idols. They go to anything, everything but God. And God hands them over into those things, into their sin. And, and then they begin to cry out, and usually what happens is that God raises up a leader, a judge, to save them. But look how it twists. Look how it turns here in verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. I mean, they've done a lot more than just serve the Baals, but okay. Uh, in verse 11, the Lord said to the people of Israel, didn't... Didn't I save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, the Amalekites, the Mayanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you. In the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good. You only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord and became impatient. And, and he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. Huh. This happens over and over again in this book. The people of God, they turn away from God. They have this whole list now of the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of these, the god of this one. And then these nations, it seems, begin to enslave these people. Which is often true in our own life, is that idolatry, uh, our, our worship of other things, can lead to enslavement. When we go to anything but God as worship, it can enslave us and trap us. John Calvin famously put it, the human heart is an idol factory, churning out new idols like the conveyor belt in a manufacturing plant, rolling out new widgets. They forsook the Lord. They didn't worship Him. It seems so different sometimes to, to think about that culture and these giant maybe statues of a god or uh, the god of Baal or Ashtaroth. Like we don't really have, yeah, we have like, 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 you know, Allah or other Buddha gods like that. But our, our gods are much more subtle, I think, today. But also very dangerous. I mean, you think about like the the idol of, of, of technology in our life. Technology is not a bad thing, but it can turn into phone enslavement, uh, being always addicted to entertainment or leading to other things like pornography or sex or, or even just the idol that we have in our life of happiness. Like, I just want to be happy or, or, or ourselves, that we think of ourselves as something we need to put 
first, or maybe our, our kids, or work, or money. There are so many things that we can put in the place of, of God, and they cry out because they're oppressed, and, and God says, I've saved you so many times. I saved you out of Egypt. Saving is what God does. That's what he's done so many times. But now he says to them, well, go cry out to the ones you just worship. Go cry out to those gods that you put your faith in. Our gods make puny substitutes for the real God. I was watching the um, original, the first um, Marvel, um, I keep wanting to say Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's not it. The, um, the, the first one where they're all together, um, Avengers, yes, Shelby, thank you. <laughs> You're like the last one I would think they would tell me about that, but thank you. <laughs> the first Avengers movie, I was watching with my son Mitch over the first time, and if you've seen it recently or years ago, but there's a scene where this really big guy, uh, he comes at the bad guy, right? He comes to the bad guy, and the bad guy, Loki, is saying, I'm a god, you should bow down to me. And uh, the Hulk just takes him and kind of smashes him back and forth and walks away and says, puny God. Like, that's what we should think of these other things in our life, that they are puny compared to what God is. That's what God is trying to tell these people. And, and they respond and say, okay, we've sinned. Uh, please deliver us. We'll put away these foreign gods. And, but do they repent? Do they, do they get it? We're, we're not quite sure. I think about repentance as this, um, when you're at the airport and those moving walkways, it's not just um, standing in one place um, in, in a, in a, a solid ground and, and looking forward, but it's, it's, it's kind of moving in that direction forward something. So if you think about kind of faith is putting your faith in Jesus forward and, and repentance is turning from something behind you, it's not just looking away from that and to Jesus, but it is actively moving away from that thing behind me toward, toward Jesus. So it's moving walkways. They just they, they move you down toward Jesus. If you are stuck over, over, over again, repenting, continually stuck in this sin, the question really is, is that really Repentance. So these leaders then are left with this question of what now? They're stuck. God says, okay, I'm growing tired of your misery, but he doesn't say I'm going to save you. And look at verse 18 then. The people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the question of this book, the question of uh, this whole thing about who is going to lead us. I don't know if they've kind of given up on God at this point and said, okay, we'll just go find somebody else to lead us, but look who they go to in verse 1 now of chapter 11. Now, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was a son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you're the son of another woman. 
Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. This is the start of our guy. This is our leader. This is what we're going to follow. Verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah, the land of Tob, and they said to him, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders, didn't you hate me? You drove me out of my father's house. Why have you come to me now when you were in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And they respond, The Lord will be witness between us. We do not do as you say. And so Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead. The people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So we're introduced to our, our leader here. He's, he's one of them. He's uh, a mighty warrior, a good start. But he's also the son of a prostitute. All of his dad's kids hate him. They drove him away, and so this is the guy they choose. For whatever reason, they're, they're stuck. They, 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 they feel like God has abandoned them, and so they go to this worthless, kind of surrounded by worthless fellows kind of a guy. And notice it doesn't say that this is the guy who, the, who God raised up to save them. Uh, this is the, the people's pick. This is part of the downward spiral of this whole book, is that it begins with God putting forth these leaders and, and, and saving them, and then by the end, it's just whoever wants to go can go, and it, it gets worse and worse and worse. And Jephthah uses his words, but it seems like there's this pattern here of the people going to somebody else, help us, first to God, help us, and then to Jephthah, help us, but do they really understand this repentance idea? It seems like their repentance maybe was, was short-lived or when, when they figured out that God wouldn't help them, okay, we'll go to Jephthah and, and maybe he will help us. But this is the background of this guy, Jephthah, we're going to look at. If God doesn't give you what you want, um, don't just go up and go on to the next best thing. But let's read on in our story here about what Jephthah does in his leading. There's some good and there's some bad. The second thing about leadership, though, is that leaders rely on the word of God. They rely on the word of God. I think about Jesus when he was tempted in the desert by Satan, uh, trying to get him to get off his mission to sin. Jesus continually went to the word of God for his answers. Relying on God is, is knowing what this thing says, knowing where to look for answers in this, not just kind of flipping it open and hoping that something will, will help you out, but saying that I know this well, if I know God what you're speaking to me and what this means for my 
life. This is why we, we preach on this. This is why we try and go through like even hard books like the book of Judges to understand what God says to us through this. Uh, I mentioned last week that we, after church, had some leaders, some elders, uh, some team leaders, staff kind of meet for this uh, kind of planning session about our church, thinking about the future. And one of the first things we did is we prayed together. We sought God to speak to us through his word. And talk about things like discipleship in the word, praying in the word. So how does this come up with Jephthah? Look at verse 12 of chapter 11. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Anamites and said, What do you have against me? That you come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. So instead of going right into battle, which is what many of these leaders and judges do, Jephthah sends out this delegation, this, this letter to these people that are attacking them, to try and figure out what is going on. And I think this is, this is smart, right? This is um, especially smart uh, before the use of any kind of uh, phones or technology. Um, he's trying to use his technology, a letter, to figure out how he can talk back and forth to figure this thing out. The king of the Ammonites has this argument and says, you, you stole our land a couple of 100 years ago. Generations ago, you stole our land. Uh, give it back to us, please. And so what Jephthah begins to do, I'm not going to read all for you here because it's, it's kind of just a retelling of um, some chapters in Numbers and Deuteronomy. But he, kinda, he begins to kind of just use the scriptures to say to this king, well, that's not actually what happened. Um, I'm going to go to my Bible in Numbers and Deuteronomy. He kind of recounts to them, from the Bible, what has happened, how, how God gave this land to them. There's, there's some not quite good theology in his speech, but he's, he's trying to rely on the, the Bible, basically, to win this argument with this king. And he ends this whole long letter speech in verse 27 with this idea. He says, I therefore have not sinned against you. And you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. You know, out of all the things that Jephthah does, we're going to see here, the, the good, the bad, this I think is one of the best. He goes to the Word of God. There's no other judge in this whole book that does that, that relies on Scripture like that. In our own life, in times of trouble or distress, whether it be at your work or home, is that what you go to first? Do you rely on the Word of God? Do you know it well enough to put your faith and trust in God's Word in it? We, we take this turn here in Jephthah's life. Jephthah is doing well. He's using scripture, but it turns tragic here. 
He, he seems to kind of know and love Scripture, but it, it's his understanding that's going to kind of get him in trouble. And I'll just be honest with you, there's a lot of kind of strange and weird things that happen in the Old Testament, the Bible, and this is one of those that uh, is, is hard to read and hard to look at. Our, our third point here is that leaders need to watch their words with God. We need to watch our words with God. Ecclesiastes 5 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they're doing is evil. But be not rash with your mouth, or let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. How we talk to God, how we invoke God's name, maybe in a curse word, or make promises to God, or speak to God. Be, be careful with these things. Look at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. So here's the God responding and saying, I'm going to put my spirit upon you now. Maybe the people picked you, but you're using Scripture, relying on it, so my spirit is upon you. And then in verse 30, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Why, why does he do this? He, he has the Spirit of the Lord on him. He's, he's doing well, but he makes this, this vow you know, it seems like God is empowering him somehow, but he's, he's, he's kind of bargaining with God. God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. I will give you this. It's, it's never a good idea to try and, like, make bargains with God. God, if you just make me really rich, um, I will do this for you. God, if you just give me this promotion, or I, I don't know what your bargain would be, but it's not really the way that God works. There's a whole like deep dive you could do in the Bible about vows. You know, vows today don't, I don't think, have as much meaning. We, we talk about vows like in, in weddings or making an oath when you talk before a, a judge, but even those things today are not as binding, it seems like, as it was back then. There's this sense in the Bible that when you make a vow, when you say something out loud because there was nothing else to kind of hold your word, that it was final. Ecclesiastes 5, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. Pay what you vow. Or in Deuteronomy 23, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you. You get to the New Testament, it changes where 
Jesus and, and even other ones talk about, like the book of James, that just let your yes be yes. And they make vows and all these things. But there were also these ideas that if you made a vow kind of rashly or inappropriately, that there were things you could do to kind of walk away from that. But look what happens with Jephthah. He goes out, he defeats the Ammonites, and then in verse 34 it says, Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him. With tambourines and with dances, she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. So this vow he makes to the Lord of whatever comes out of my house first, I will sacrifice as a burnt offering. And then his daughter comes out, and he goes right into blaming mode, blaming the daughter. You are the one that came out. You caused me all this grief. I have to fulfill this. And the daughter accepts this, and it seems like there's, there's some maybe disagreement that maybe she wasn't actually sacrificed, but it seems like she actually was, to me, sacrificed. Now there's no, this is the hard part about the book of Judges sometimes, there's no like narrator steps back and says, that's good, that's bad. <laughs> We're just supposed to kind of read this flatly and understand. But here's a case where we have a man using his words inappropriately, vowing this bargain to God in an unacceptable way and doing something horrific. So again, this idea that leaders, we need to watch our words with God. Don't bargain with God. Don't make vows of this kind of terrible thing that can, can happen. And finally, it, it kind of just gets worse to worse to worse. Our fourth and last point is that leaders use their words to prevent inner fighting. After he does this, the, the nation continues to spiral down. And verse 1 of chapter 12, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed over and said to Jephthah, Why didn't you cross over to fight against them? Said, why, why didn't you call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you... Would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Okay, so he's using his words again. This is what Jephthah does. He talks to people. They, they want to come and burn his house down and kill him. But look what he does. Verse 4. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck them. Because they said, you are fugitives. And it says they killed about 42,000 people that day. There's no talking this time back and forth. There's no, um, uh, you know, let's have a conversation. This is just, you've accused me, now I will go fight and kill you. 
I mentioned this two weeks ago that there's this caution in the book of Judges a lot too about inner turmoil and even unity in our own church and, and family. And I think asking ourselves these questions of am I, am I too quick to fight or judge other Christians? Are there, are there people that I'm refusing to forgive in my own life? Do we spend as much time pursuing unity and overlooking insults as we do seeking to remain on good terms? Or do we really go for forgiveness and, and reconciliation? We should be a, a people that use kindness and encouragement and fulfill what Jesus talked about in John 17, this great unity idea for the church. Well, Jephthah's story ends like this in verse 7. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Most times the, the judge dies and it says how long they judge for and says there was peace for this many years, 40 years or 10 years. As we get further and further into this book, we're going to see that there's no more peace at all with the death or life of these leaders. The entire book of Judges is meant to be this pointing toward this longing for us of something better. That in our own eyes doesn't work. Our own king, our own judge, our own people we pick does not work. But this longing for Jesus. That he is the judge, as Jephthah calls out God. Jesus is our true leader and judge. He's the the one that has all of the correct words, the words of life for us. And so there should be this longing in us that, ah, I don't want to be like Jephthah and, and the, the misuse of his words, but I want to have Jesus in my heart, his words in me daily. That's the invitation to you today, that whether you are a Christian or, or not, or you're questioning, do you have Jesus in you his very words in you. And to that, let me pray for you. Father, we are thankful for your words. You, you said that you spoke things into existence. You created us. You created um, the, the, the very vocal cords and lips and tongues that we use, but God, so often our own words get us into trouble. Our thoughts, our, our, our language. So God, we, just, we, we confess that to you now. We repent of that now, God, and say that we, we don't want to have unwholesome or dirty or disgusting language or words in our life, but we want the words of life to, to, to be in us, to be in our mouth, to be in our, our head, in our heart, that God, your words would be so important to us to rely on them and to speak to you that it might cause unity and joy even in our fellowship here. So God, as we now speak, sing these words to you, would you inspire us and fill us with your presence and joy. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.